Well, welcome and good morning, Trinity Bible Church. Uh, we are back into the uh, Gospel according to Matthew. Uh, this morning we will be finishing chapter 19. Uh, we, uh, we've been in and out of Matthew now, it seems, for, for quite some time. Uh, really, 18 through 20 is a kind of a final a teaching portion of, of Jesus, and that's kind of where we're in, right in the middle of that, nearing the end, where he's having these final um, teachings both to his disciples, to the crowds, as he continues to make his way to Jerusalem. Uh, I'll be reading... Longer than we'll actually be covering this morning. The majority of what we'll be covering will be between verses 23 and 30. Uh, but for context, I'll be reading from 16 uh, to 30 uh, as where we left off last time we were in Matthew was really halfway through the interaction with the rich young ruler, as it's known. So this morning, if you're visiting here, uh, we'll read through the entirety of, of the, these passages this morning. And then after I finish reading, give you an opportunity to pray silently. Uh, ask for God the Holy Spirit to prepare your heart and your mind, uh, to illuminate uh, your mind to the truth of the eternal word. And then after that time, I'll pray for us uh, corporately, and then we'll enter into the time of the ministry of the word. So reading now from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 19, reading from verses 16 through 30. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell your, all you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, only with great difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God... All things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Uh, please take this time to pray. 
Heavenly Father, as we, as we consider uh, your word, we come here to celebrate the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Lord, may you grant us mercy this day. Lord, may you lead us and guide us through the Spirit and the Word as we've come to worship through song, through prayer, through fellowship of the saints, and through the ministry of the Word. Lord, may what we, everything in us, be laid bare. May that which has drawn our affections, our attention, and our worship, anything outside of the one true holy God, Lord, may you show it to us this day. May it be destroyed. Lord, confront your people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they were sinners and of no redeeming quality whatsoever and through no work of their own, God in his good pleasure determined to bring them into his family as adopted sons and daughters. Let us be reminded of our own great, impossible need for Christ our Savior. Let us be reminded at all times of his glory and his perfection and his great love, that he himself died on the cross, took on our curse, and now we who are called the church are robed and clothed in his very own righteousness. So let us continue in this time of public worship through the ministry of the word. May you confront and ultimately comfort your people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may those who are outside of the faith who are here today, Lord, may be this the time you have appointed for them to be shattered by the reality and the truth of the gospel through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, given faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ for their salvation and your glory. We pray this time in your name, in Christ's name, amen. It's been uh, over a month, and so... Anytime we, we do this, I'm not going to go too far back, but that is why I read uh, 16 through, through 22, was to kind of give the whole view of the story. If you might not have been here, you might not remember. In essence, a, a young man comes to, to Jesus to, to ask him a question, and he comes to him prepared in, in his heart, and his mind, and his understanding to show this teacher, this rabbi, this one who has a following and everyone has heard of, heard of his great deeds, heard of his teaching, heard of the way he's confounded the, the rulers of the day. And he comes to show Jesus that he is justified by his keeping of the law. And, and he had not been around evidently in the prior portions of Christ's ministry where, where he was making it very clear that there was an impossible aspect to keeping the law because uh, there was no longer just a simple outward action. Christ was pointing to the inner working of the person, that the sin began here, deep inside, where man believed it was hidden. 
And so he could hide that, and then the external act might not have come out. This is clearly um, I'm, I'm taught when Christ particularly uses the illustration of anyone who has, any man who has looked on a woman with lust has committed adultery. Something that was shocking to, to his culture. The idea that, that thoughts and, and what comes from the inner person is actually indication of sin, not just the acting out of the action. So here comes a man saying, I've done all these things and I'm ready to be justified. So Christ, using this man's own foundation of of argument, says, fine, if you'd be justified, and he was known to be um, well off or an owner of much property, uh, according to Luke, sell it all. And, And what's interesting about the interaction, it's the only time in any of the Gospels that Jesus tells somebody this exact thing. Take everything, sell it all. And give to the poor. And then come, follow me. Now the emphasis we talked about in the way that it's written is on the come and follow me. He's telling the man, in essence, jettison everything that is causing you to sin. Jettison that which you worship most in life. And what he instructed then, or what he showed this man and the audience... There was great love that this man had for something, but it wasn't God, and it wasn't keeping the law. It was his wealth. So Jesus tells him, get rid of everything, sell it all, give to the poor, follow me. And that emphasis as Jesus is going towards his destined place on the cross, come and follow me, and the man can't do it. He walks away sad, it says, because he had much possessions. And this has been the case throughout the gospel. And this is, this is the case throughout the gospel accounts as a whole, both the synoptics and the gospel of John. That when people were confronted with the cost of discipleship, the vast majority walk away. And as we'll see, as Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem... Even on the night of his arrest, those closest to him, those he's chosen, those who have been with him and who would lead the church afterward, they all flee. They come to learn the cost later. But here we take this, this teaching, which is, is, is really going as a bridge between, this 23 and 30 is a bridge between or ending this interaction with the rich young ruler and then what you would see as the, the next parable teaching that is coming up. And so starting in 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, the question that began everything in 16, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And and we already know the answer. There's nothing you can do. There's no good deed that you're going to be able to check off and go, I did it. I can sit back, watch the games. I've got eternal life. There is no deed that you can do that will reach or attain or make it to where God is going to look down on you and say, oh, you did it. Yeah, you got it. You're good. Time for you to enter in. 
No, the reality was that it needed to be something done for you. You you needed imputed righteousness. You don't have righteousness. In order to be in this new kingdom that Christ has been preaching over and over again, something holy is needed in you, and yet you are a sinner. You are by nature antithesis to holiness. You need a mediator. You need an intercessor. That's who Christ is. That's who Messiah is in his first advent. He's coming to be your intercessor. He's going to be your redeemer. He's going to be the one who actually fulfills the law in perfection and then willingly goes as the Passover lamb to take the curse and sin. So what you need for eternal life, when Christ is saying, give everything away you have and follow me, he's telling this rich young ruler, what you need is me. Give it all away. All that is holding you down, all that you worship, all that you find so important in this life, and also the reality that this life is not the true life that we're looking for. This kingdom is not the kingdom that we want to inhabit And the riches that we desire are not the here and now and in possessions. Rather, an inheritance unearned in this new world that Christ will rule and reign over. Only with great difficulty. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, the eye of the needle and the camel. So, this particular saying, I'm going to say a few things, and I'm, I don't want to ask for a raise of hands, but raise your hands if you've heard this. The eye of the needle, the needle itself is representative of something else. The point of the needle is the word of God. And, and, and the, the majority of the needle has to do with the depth with which the word of God is going to pierce your heart. Uh, The camel or the large animal or the Gentiles who can't make it into the kingdom and, 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 and the unbelieving Jews. But it's only through the word that the needle is pierced through the heart and blah, blah, blah. Have any of you ever heard that one? I know that you were not grow up in a Lutheran church. Okay. Try this one then. Let's see where your background is. This one I know will have much traction. Maybe not, watch me not know anything about any of you. And so, (laughs) the eye of the needle is actually, no, let me do another one first. Camel itself, we shouldn't interpret it as the animal. Because the word is is really, in Greek, there's two words that form a compound word that mean rope. And it was a common use of that word for rope on a fisherman's vessel so jesus is explaining to his fisherman disciples that just like that rope can't fit through a sewing needle so is it almost impossible then for for a rich person to attain eternal life anyone okay 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 we have a couple now this one the eye of the needle is actually a small gate I didn't have to finish. All the hands went up. (laughs) A small gate in Jerusalem. And through that gate, barely a man could fit through it. And 
and the camel, it was impossible. The camel would be fully loaded. They'd have to take all the possessions off. The camel would have to kneel down and kind of shuffle, and somehow they know how to do that. They were trained to do that, like shuffle through this tiny gate. But it was almost impossible. That's Okay, uh, those are all wrong. And, and, and it's very simple, the meaning of this. So, so this, was a, this was a colloquial saying. Jesus is borrowing a very old Jewish kind of proverb. And we know this because it's found like in places like the Babylonian Talmud, where like, that was written like centuries before Christ, except instead of a camel, it was an elephant. And, and the reality is, is it's used elsewhere in kind of Jewish folklore, it's a saying to tell you something is impossible. That's what it means. So it does mean a sewing needle, and it does mean a camel or a large animal fitting through the head of the needle. So the whole point of Jesus saying that is that it's impossible. And you want to know how I know that's the right interpretation? Because he literally is going to say right after that, that it's impossible for man, but nothing is impossible for God. So the reality is it's, he's using hyperbole or, or, or just a metaphor to express something to his audience. And it was a well-known saying to his audience at the time. The camel through the eye of the needle. There's nowhere in antiquity, for, for, since this was the majority hand raised, There's nowhere found anything, anywhere, at any time, throughout all of history, or any archaeological find thus far in our lifetime, that talks about a needle gate. Okay? I don't know why it's a pet peeve of mine. Just sometimes, if you've known me long enough, weird things irritate me. But so this is is kind of one commentator, uh, I think, wrote it best. He said, I've heard a story about this needle gate. And in this story, and he goes on every time, he goes, like most really interesting stories, nothing at all is true about this story. <laughs> but Jesus just wants his disciples to know, as he's saying, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He's letting you know there's an impossible aspect to it. This reality of especially the man who they had just encountered. This man who had been come to Messiah, who they'd already in 16 made a confession of faith. We know who you are, Jesus. You're the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God. He tells them, God gave you that wisdom, that knowledge of that answer, Peter, that didn't come from man. You see it? The the kind of the, the exchange and the way the repeated themes... And now he's telling them, this rich man who came to me and was telling me that he fulfilled all the law and all he needed was one deed, he's not going to enter into the kingdom. He's not righteous. It's impossible for him to enter the kingdom, particularly in the way that he believed he was going to enter the kingdom. Rather than faith in Messiah, faith in the Christ, faith in the second person of the Trinity, For the redemption of his sins, it was rather his rigor, his work, righteousness of his own, which Martin Luther would say is nothing but filthy rags. 
Because we have no righteousness of our own. We are not justified by our work. And so since we need to be justified, that is who Christ is and that is what he does. Since we have no righteousness of our own, we need someone else's and that's who gives us our righteousness is Christ. And so the disciples hear this. And they were greatly astonished in 25. Who then can be saved? Goes back to the question. How must I get eternal life? Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter, the great spokesperson of the disciples, asks what is probably a really bad and at the same time a really good question. And another kind of cultural idea that they lived in was that riches represented God's blessing. If you paid attention to any of the Gospels, maybe not my preaching, but like Gospels when you read them or whatever it may be, when you look at them, what do you see? Where does Jesus go? Goes to the poor, he goes to the sick, he goes to the social outcasts. That's not because he was a revolutionary who wanted to overthrow the oppressors for the oppressed or any nonsense like that. What he was doing was showing them there is no difference. There is no difference in who needs me. The rich need me. The poor need me. The afflicted, everything. And yet in this world that that God decides at the right time, at the right place, the incarnation will happen and Christ's ministry will happen. The cultural belief and tradition at the time was sickness was a sign of God's cursing. Remember Job? Remember Job's great friends? Remember his awesome wife? Curse God and die. Why? Because he was sick and he had lost everything. His friends keep telling him, surely you must have sinned. Surely you must just confess. Neither sickness, disease, nor poverty are signs of God's curse. Any more than riches or wealth are a sign of God's blessing. In the vice, in, in the it's you switch it around, and it's the same thing. So Jesus comes into a culture where people are now put on the outskirts of society because the majority of society says those people are cursed by God. We have to separate ourselves from them, lest we get infected, not with their leprosy, but with their God cursing. And so Jesus goes outside the walls to the leper camps. He goes to the woman who's bleeding for over a decade and would have been a social outcast and pariah and publicly heals her. He goes to the worst in Jewish society, a Roman centurion. No one would have been hated more than the centurion walking down the street. Jesus publicly interacts with him. He's letting them know all of their false cultural beliefs mean nothing. So when when Peter's asking, what must we do? 
he's thinking in terms of like, well, if rich people aren't going to go to the kingdom, they're the ones who are blessed. What, what about us? And Jesus, or who can be saved? With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. When you consider the reality of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom, this kingdom is why he's come. He's inaugurated it with his incarnation. He's teaching and preaching about it. It was foretold throughout all of the Old Testament canon. The last prophet of the Old Testament, John, is speaking of this final time. Messiah has finally arrived. He finally arrives. He's here. He's walking toward his destiny that only a few understand, namely his disciples, who he's told that he must go and die, but they don't like it. And he's moving toward that place and and this appointed time. And all of it is to bring about the reality of this question, how must we be saved? That's the only question that matters. Do you realize that? When, when you interact, if you're here today and you're in Christ, understand everyone who is not that you interact with, that you see about your day, your neighbors across the street, behind you, down the road, your family members, the random interactions you have with other image bearers. The only real question that matters is this question. If you want to credit the rich young ruler with anything, it has to be his question. What must I do to be saved? That's the question that matters. That's what you have to talk with your children about at the dinner table. That's what you have to have uncomfortable conversations perhaps with friends and family. As one who is born again, as one who has been saved and now are here for a short time for one purpose, to glorify God in your life. And God's put you in a place with plenty of ability, whoever you are, to live out your faith as a reflection of God's glory and share that faith. I hope people are challenged when you, when you hear Michaela's account. There's a whole world not that far away from us that is simply filled with despair. The only answer for that despair is Christ. The only answer in life that needs to be answered is how must I be saved? And and to summarize and to put a finality to this interaction with the rich young man, Christ doesn't sugarcoat it by by saying, well, he says it's impossible. Man can't do it, but with God, all things are possible. A few comments on riches. Uh, This is generally 
this interaction, believe it or not, and I don't often do this in terms of like talking about this is modern teaching on this particular teaching of Jesus that is not only erroneous, but dangerous. And the reality is there's a couple of ways that this goes in our modern church. The easy, low-lying fruit would be certain aspects of the charismatic church, particularly the word of faith movement, that would show or teach that riches is, is a sign of your great faith, just as physical health and general happiness and how much teeth you show at all times because you're happy and you're well off and you're not sick and it's your faith is good. And if you get sick or, or, or you're not have enough money, it's a sign that your faith is not enough. And so you need more faith. And generally in that movement, then they take, although they wouldn't admit it, the belief of the rich young ruler is the theology of the word of faith movement. Well, I have all this property. I have all these riches. That's great faith and shows all the faith in in favor of God. No, it's not. Because when you get sick, it's because your body is dying. And, And every one of those false teachers, the answer is amazingly, if you want to show more faith, give me more money. And then God's going to return that money to you fivefold. It's an aberration. It's disgusting. And it plagues the church today. If you happen to be financially well off and are faithful with your possessions and you are not a worshiper of money and possessions and you give it away and you're just successful in that way. Good for you. Be faithful in with what God's given you. If you have little, in the same manner, don't view that as, as some type of God's down on me or something like that. Be content. And be faithful with what you have. And if the pursuit of more is something that is, is, is driven by a, a desire to serve God with whatever you have, go, go for it. But if you are obsessed with more, then you have this theology of the rich young ruler. Possessions, possessions, possessions which God calls throughout all of of the scriptures an idol now the other part has to do with the way Jesus talks about the rich and the poor now in the last few years in our culture we know that there suddenly became a lot of discussion about the oppressed and the oppressors and all the stuff that came after 
COVID and all the cities burning and then this narrative has continued throughout. And for many of you, you've probably felt like that's a new thing, but it's not a new thing. It's something that's been going on for a really long time. It's the application of what's known as cultural Marxism, uh, which is the, the, the oppressed and the oppressor. Now, if you've ever read the Communist Manifesto, you know that the biggest target of that document is the church. Because the church represented the norms of society. And those all have to be broken down. And you have to take down people in power because the people in power are wanting to oppress you and they have stuff and you deserve that stuff. And of course, it always involves bloody revolution. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, through most communist upheavals of societies, Jesus was used as an example. He was used in Cuba predominantly. He was used in Russia. And often he's used now in our society, in the church, which has been infected with this idea that Jesus was a social revolutionary who wanted to overthrow the society so that the oppressed might rise up. It's called liberation theology. And it's everywhere. Number one, Jesus was not looking for societal upheaval. He wasn't pointing to this world as something that could be perfected. He was pointing to the next world. And certainly that there would be parity and, and, and all of these things that, that are lacking here. But he's not here to make this fallen world perfect. Because when he returns, he's going to burn it all up. And he's going to recreate. And so that that vision, that Edenic vision in Genesis will be fulfilled in his new heavens and new earth. So when Peter asked this question, and we have to ask this question as well, as like, what, what am I viewing this life as so important? What possessions, what things do I look at, or what is in my life that is above Christ? If, like the disciples, Christ was here physically and he said, Follow me. What could you not give up? Peter wants an answer to that question, actually. In 27, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, in his new kingdom, the new heavens, the new earth, some of you. In your older translations might say in the renewal. But in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. 
the cost of discipleship. Peter's asking like, and we know from from later texts of the New Testament, Peter had a wife. We assume he had children. Later, Paul's talking about all the disciples had families, wives at least, except for a couple. So we know they had lives. We know that as the question of riches comes up and possessions, Peter and his brother had at least one boat. And we know from archaeological findings that, that these boats were massive during this time. So more than likely, they had several employees. He might not have been rich, but he was not hurting. And he tells Peter, you who are with me and anyone who I have said, follow me. To them, it was a physical, here's Messiah walking up to me and I'm in the middle of working. This is my family business. It's everything that that I've inherited from my father and me and my brothers now have it and we'll give it to our sons. And then this man walked up to us and said, follow us. And what does it say? They dropped everything and followed him. That doesn't make sense. If a man walked up to you on the street and said, follow me, you'd be like, back off, dude. Back up. You're in my bubble. And we live in an age where I'm, I suspect everyone is trying to probably rob me or hurt me or catch me on camera. Go away. But Jesus is like, follow me. And, and the reality is the lack of it making sense is the point. The tax collector who was well off, get up from your booth and follow me. Okay. The reality is that it's still that way. When you're called out of a life of darkness into light. When Christ calls you to himself by the power of the Holy Spirit that you are convicted of your sin and you repent and turn and call on his name, that is him through the Spirit and his holy word saying, follow me. And now all things in life become secondary to Christ. And he's saying things like husbands, wives, children, all these things. You're like, hold on. It doesn't mean you're like, feed yourself. I'm following Jesus. What it means is that now everything in your life should be amplified that much more. Your love of your spouse, your love of your children, the way, the rigor with which you approach work, the, the idea of how you look at your neighbor and how you interact with people, all of it now is God-centered rather than me-centered. The rich young ruler needed this. He needed to understand the answer to his problem was that which he loved the most wasn't God and it wasn't following the law. It was his possessions and it might be something else or was at one time something else with you. And God calls us to love him more than anything. And then our love of Christ now shapes everything else in our life. Because we're being transformed by the working of the Spirit and the Word. Everything else in our life, our possessions, our spouses, our children, our family, people we meet, people we know, it's all shaped now by this Christ-centered life. 
And that's consistent with everything Jesus has been saying since the beginning of us reading of this gospel. Follow me and have eternal life. Follow me and know true joy. Follow me and you will inherit my kingdom. Don't make any New Year's resolutions, please. Rather, consider anew your new life in Christ. Whether you were saved or whether you came to faith decades and decades ago or it was last year or it was this week, consider, be reminded of your new life in Christ and your great inheritance that awaits you. And let that shape your view of everything else in life filters through Christ. Christ is at the top. My greatest love, my greatest adoration, all of my affections, all that I invest my time and my resources in, all has to be filtered through Christ. Because a church filled with believers who hold fast to that, in their blessed hope of his return. What an example they can be. Encourage one another with these words of Christ. Who can be saved? With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we consider your word, as we consider the words of Christ, may we, your people, be confronted with whatever idols we've constructed in our life, with whatever things have taken preeminence in our thoughts, distracted us. Lord, show us those things. Let us repent. Let our spirit be renewed and refreshed. Let our affections be shaped in such a manner that they are drawn towards your glory in all instances. May you bless the lives of the people of this church. May you bless the marriages, the children. May you comfort the widows. Will you show your might and strength to the sick? Will you give solace and company to the single? May you grant all of us great faith, and great trust, and a great love for one another 
through the union we share in Christ. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.